KMTT, Kimitzion, Tetzay Torah. Today is Wednesday. We have the weekly shiur on the philosophy of the Vilna Gaon and his school by Havav Aliyakim Kramban. Shalom. Today we're going to continue a discussion of the Vilna Gaon of his personality and his influence. But I'd like to take a turn in relation to what we've done in the past. Until now, we've been using the writings of the Vilna Gaon's great disciples. And through their eyes, we've gotten a front row view of who the Vilna Gaon was, which I hope you've found very interesting and intriguing. However, as we all know, the front row isn't necessarily the best place to sit and to see things. You know, when you sit in the front row, sometimes you're distracted by minor details. Uh, And when you sit further back, that might give you the opportunity to get a broader perspective on what's going on on the stage. It gives you the opportunity, perhaps, to close your eyes for a few moments and think about what's happening. Now, that's what I'd like to do today. Using what we've learned, we'll try to get a broader perspective on who the Vilna Gaon was. The first area I'd like to focus on in this regard is perhaps the dominant and the most important legacy of the Vilna Gaon, his status as the Gaon. The distinguishing characteristics of the Gaon as a great Lamdan, as a great learner of Torah. Last week, we took a kind of detailed view of the Shita, the approach of the Gaon, of his life work in learning. And we saw that the Gaon was preoccupied with finding the sources and the sources of the sources of all the various branches of Torah literature. And I pointed out that it's somewhat of an oddity because as great and as important this life work was, today this kind of learning is virtually unknown in learning circles primarily in those very learning circles who view themselves as the followers and the spiritual heirs of the Vilna Gaon. Of course, I'm referring to the yeshiva world, particularly the Eastern European, Lithuanian yeshiva, yeshiva world, who proudly counts the Gra as their progenitor. But on the other hand, if we compare the way they learn and the way the Vilna Gaon learned, it's very different. Today, we are concerned with textual and conceptual analysis, categorization. But of course, we're selling, we're, we'd be selling the situation short if we'd stop here. It is certainly true that the Gaon's learning had and has an abiding influence and a powerful one upon the Torah world today. And today we'd like to examine a little bit of how and why that is. There's a certain commonplace in the yeshiva world 
that the Vilna Gaon, even though he lived in the period of the Achronim, the latter-day authorities, but he has the status and the authority of a Rishon. Whereas another Achron would uh, hardly view himself as being on, on a level where he, he could dispute a Rishon, an earlier authority. But this privilege has been granted freely to the Vilna Gaon, and he is allowed to do it. From where does this, does this perception come? The Vilnagon is like a Rishon. Of course, it has to do with his greatness. But it appears it also has to do with his style of learning. Just as the Vilnagon, in his approach, which we spoke about, tried to take all of the halachot, all of the non halachot, and view them in the perspective of the primary sources. In so doing, he was actually skipping over centuries of authority, centuries of commentary. And he was taking a fresh look at things. In a sense, he was placing himself back in the period of the Rishonim. Moreover, even in the style of learning, his learning had the characteristics of a Rishon. One of the great scholars of uh, our generation, Dr. Yisrael Tashema, Zichon Olivracha, who did uh, as much as anyone else, perhaps more than anyone else, to digest the Torah literature of the Rishonim and to make us aware of the processes, the thought processes and the literary processes at work in them, He pointed out that anyone today, any yeshiva, who has uh, a solid yeshiva background, can easily discern the writings of a Rishon from the writings of an Acharon. And the question is, how is this done? How can someone, how does someone instinctively know that the parish that he's looking at is the parish of a Rishon and not the parish of an Acharon? Dr. Tashama didn't give an exhaustive answer to this question, but he did point out three characteristics, which, uh, if we examine them, actually can be used to explain why the Vilna Gaon is like a Rishon. One characteristic, for example, is the fact that Rishonim, when they discuss a Gemara and when they try to explain a Gemara, they use a wide spectrum of sources. They're not only confined to the Gemara in front of them, but they use many different sources of Chazal. They use Midrashei Halacha, they use the Tosefta, they use the Rushami, they might even use Midrashei Agada. Whereas in the classic Achronim, the Pnei Yoshua, the Tzlach, and so on, as a rule, these Achronim confine themselves to the Gemara, to the Sugya of the Talmud Bavli itself. Now, the Vilna Gaon, as far as his learning is concerned, one of his major emphases was the fact that all of the literature of Chazal has to be known, learned, and utilized in the study of Torah. And he actually pioneered the raising of the consciousness of the importance of this broad knowledge of everything that is found in Chazal, in order to fully understand what the Talmud Bavli is saying. 
Another thing which distinguishes the learning of Ishonim as opposed to the learning of Achronim is that the Achronim, as a rule, are not concerned with verifying the correct reading of the Gemara, the correct Girsa. As we know, very often, there are different versions of a given sugya, a letter, a word, sometimes even a sentence. And these variant readings have um, a major impact on the understanding of the flow of the Gemara. And nevertheless, despite the, the potential importance of verifying the variant readings, as a rule, the Achronim don't deal with this. They take the text in front of them as a given, and they proceed from there. The Vilna Gaon, however, was very, very far from this assumption that the text in front of him was the correct text, and he expended major effort on clarifying the correct reading. And this is something which characterized the learning of the Rishonim. Whether it's Rishonim Sfarad, whether it's Rishonim Ashkenaz, this was a major concern of theirs. What's the proper text of the Gemara? Many of the Vilna Gaon's writings actually are devoted to this issue, clarifying the correct reading. And his variant reading was on the Yerushalmi, on the Tosefta, on the Midrashei Halacha, are are a fixture in uh, in the various pub- uh, publishing the b- various uh, uh, editions of all these works, which are extant to this day. A third area which distinguishes the learning of Ishonim as, as opposed to the learning of Achronim is that in Achronim, again, I'm talking about the classic Achronim. There's a division between the the realm of exegesis, commentary of the sources, and the realm of halachic decision-making. And as a rule, a work which is devoted to halachic decision-making will be built around that specific area. Whereas when the achronim explain what the Gemara is saying, they try to arrive at what the pshat in the Gemara is, according to their view, without the aim of deciding the halakha ma'aseh. Now in the Rishonim, this division, this demarcation, hardly exists. When the Rishonim explain the Gemara, Tosvot, Ramban, Rashba, in all of these chidushim on the Shast, the aim is not only to explain the Pshat in the Gemara, but wherever the Pshat in the Gemara is relevant, Halakha Lema'aseh, the Rishon will then proceed to say, to derive the Halakha conclusions that stem from their understanding of the Gemara. The Vilna Gaon, it appears, joined these two areas together, just like the Rishonim did, and his major Halachic work, which is his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, deals with the proper reading of the Gemara, the proper understanding of the Gemara and the sources, in order to arrive at the proper Halacha Lema'aseh. So, in, in a very real sense, these major characteristics of the learning of the Rishonim 
characterized the learning of the Vilna Gaon. However, the sense that the Vilna Gaon is a Rishon is apparently motivated and empowered by something which is even, even more far-reaching, more overarching. When the Vilna Gaon took a fresh look at the sources, he was actually making a declaration of independence. Here we have a kind of uh, paradox. A person who attempts to ground, to ground everything that he does in primary sources. Is this person a conservative? Or is he an innovator? On the face of it, we would say, well, he's a conservative because he won't take one step without making sure that whatever he says is firmly grounded in things which, are writ- which are, were written a thousand years ago. That's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, we must bear in mind that the development of Torah Shabbat Peh didn't stand still in those thousand years between the time when the primary sources were written and the Vilna Gaon is learning them. In the interim, layers upon layers, branches upon branches of new commentaries, new books, new Sifrei Halacha were composed. And the Vilna Gaon was basically taking for himself the right, the authority, and the duty to go back to the primary sources, basically ignoring the decision-making of the centuries that preceded him, and to decide by himself what the halakha should be. This, as I said, was a declaration of independence. It was an innovation which was new. And the public, the learning public, which absorbed this innovation, got from here the message that even we, in our generation, can take a look again, a fresh look, at the Gemara and the Chazal, and interpret it for ourselves. The Gaon's great autonomy, his great independence in relation to all the primary sources, expresses itself, of course, in the fact that he had revolutionary halachic decisions which overturned many of the things which have become customary in his environment. One uh, blatant example, the Graz opinion about Ben Ashmashot. Before the time of the Vilna Gaon, the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam as to the figuring of what Ben Ashmashot is held sway. It was practically universally accepted in all of the Ashkenazic world. And according to this view, Shabbat comes in very late, and it leaves very late, at a time which is uh, 72 minutes on the average after sunset. Whereas according to the Vilnagon, on the basis of examining the Gemara and the sources, he decided that this, this view is incorrect, and that we should adopt the view of the Rambam and the Gaonim, which places the beginning of the halachic day 
Bein Hashmashot, at a much earlier time, much closer to sunset. And it was to a great extent because of Vilnagon's great and powerful influence that this view has now become so widely accepted in Eretz Yisrael is virtually, uh, universally accepted, and in Chutzlart as well, it is uh, largely accepted. And this was really a major revolution in the in the customary practice, religious practice of daily life. This uh, approach to halacha that ultimately a person has the right to decide by himself, raises questions. To what extent is this true? Is it true for everyone? The Vilna Gaon did it by himself. Did he intend to propagate this approach? Did he want his students, did he want his, his disciples, did he want Jewry at large to accept this view? The Vilna Gaon certainly passed this view on to Rabbi Chaim Velazhin. And Rav Baruch Epstein, a nephew of the Nitziv, who wrote memoirs of his experiences in the yeshiva in Velazhin, he records that Rav Chaim Velazhin passed this approach on to his students in the yeshiva in Velazhin. Rav Chaim Velazhin said often, I heard from the Vilna Gaon that if ever I arrive at a certain halachic viewpoint, which differs from the view of the great, the great predecessors, whether it be Rabbi Yosef Karo or the Rama or anyone else. The Grat told me not to retract my view, but to decide this way halacha And even though it, it, it is at variance and in open dispute with the great previous authorities, Rav Baruch Epstein quotes this tradition as a distinguishing characteristic of the learning that he saw in Velazhin in his day, which was in the 1880s. This spirit of independence and taking a fresh look at the sources and being able to understand them with the use of our own mental faculties, this was uh, an empowering idea and something which undoubtedly uh, made the Shiva Velazhin, Velazhin uh, as great as it was. But again, the question, question remains, how far do we go with this? Uh, today, of course, there's a great pro- proliferation of new viewpoints and new ways of learning Gemara. Things which are uh, really new in comparison to the uh, traditional methods of learning Gemara. But I think we can feel and sense in all of this activity and all this innovation in relation to Gemara that the, the, ultimately the influence of the Gaon is still being felt. Whether or not the Gaon would approve of all these things, of all these new shitot limud, of course, is a different matter. But for better or for worse, I believe that the influence is certainly there. And I think that we can safely say that if we take a look at the brisker method of learning, which today is so current and so powerful and influential in the yeshiva world, 
even though it is really pulls apart and very far removed from the shita of learning of the Vilna Gaon, but is still marked by the same spirit of independence, by the same right and the same uh, responsibility of looking intently at the Gemara itself and being able to discern the proper pshat, the depth of pshat, using our own abilities and own talents. Of course, another thing must be borne in mind, that the ability to do this, if we are to follow the example of the Vilnagon, has a condition. Vilnagon arrived at his greatness and his autonomy in learning with great dedication. He actually learned Gemara incessantly, day and night. And by the merit of this tremendous lifelong effort, he achieved total mastery over all of the halachic rabbinic literature. And actually what the Gaon is saying is that through the use of a great tremendous perseverance and great concentration, total dedication to Torah, one can achieve this great level of autonomy in learning. Uh, and the question is whether all of the people that are taking independent paths in their learning are actually living up to the example of the Vilna Gaon in this sense as well. That, of course, I leave as a, an open question. I'd like to move on now to another aspect of the personality of the Vilna Gaon. We'll leave for a moment his Gaonut, even though I'm sure that we'll get back to it in the future. But I'd like to take a personal look at the Vilna Gaon. We mentioned that the stories about the personal life of the Vilna Gaon have a certain uh, era, aura of doubt or question over them. I mentioned the the appreciative stories of the Vilna Gaon, which point out that his dedication to Torah learning was so great that he actually uh, engaged in Torah at the expense of his normal human relationships, particularly those with his family. And we pointed out how, how odd this seemed and how difficult it might be for people to accept and to identify with. Now, this uh, lack of being able to identify with the personal life of the Vilna Gaon is a general phenomenon which expresses itself according to scholars who uh, have examined the literature on this subject. There's a great reticence about anything having to do with the personal life of the Gaon. Now, we would expect such a central figure about whom, about whom so much was written. We, we might expect that the writers would give us a window into his personal life, his feelings, his emotions, his existential being, from a personal viewpoint. But such things are very, very rare. 
the Gaon's life is dominated, according to all the stories, by his dedication to Torah, by his dedication to Avodat Hashem, to Yirat Shamayim, to Musar, to Midot. But this side of him, his human side, there's a great reticence about it. It appears to be almost absent. The Gaon, according to what we see from what's being written about him, hardly ever spoke about himself. Undoubtedly, as I pointed out in the past, this uh, reticence about the Gaon's personal life has the effect, and perhaps was done for this very purpose, of putting the Gaon up on a pedestal, on propagating his image as someone who was above and beyond the normal realm of humanity. But I'd like, just for a few minutes, just to uh, say something about this issue. There is one exception, to my knowledge, to this general phenomenon, and this is in a book which, until the 20th century was hardly known, a book written by a Talmud of the Vilna Gaon, Mishklov, a book called Kol Hator. I may have mentioned this volume once in, uh, uh, in, in passing. This volume is dedicated to the Vilna Gaon's uh, messianic approach. And it was written by an eminent disciple who was trying to propagate this approach among the people he knew, he knew the other Talmudim of the Vilna Gaon and the followers of the Vilna Gaon, and in Jewry at, at large. And the interesting thing is that in this book of Kol Hator, I believe we do find the Gaon on many occasions portrayed as a real human being, a very great human being, but nevertheless a real human being. And it appears that this issue of Eretz Yisrael is something, certainly something which touched him very deeply and very emotionally. And on this issue, according to what we read in Kohatzor, he didn't hide his feelings at all. Let me just quote you one passage as an example. Rapil Mishklav writes as follows. With trembling and with excitement. Not to miss this chance of bringing the redemption. So we have here a very vivid portrayal of the Vilna Gaon with tears in his eyes, with great excitement and trembling. Likewise, in the same book, we have another account of the Vilna Gaon. Rehul Mishklav tells us 
that once he saw the Gon tremendously downcast. He appeared to be very much in great in a great uh, state of profound perplexity. And Rebbe uses the, the phrase "kasherata er." It's it's I can't even describe the great depression which the Gon appeared to be in. This depression was caused by the great conflict which the Gon was experiencing around this issue of Eretz Yisrael. On the one hand, Rabbi Mishkal tells us, the Gaon felt that it was his mission to hasten the redemption and to cause his Talmudim to go to Eretz Yisrael and to establish communities there. But on the other hand, he knew that at, in his time, Eretz Yisrael was a total wasteland and the people who lived there already were frequently ravaged with epidemics. There was no political security. People were constantly dying, being killed, either by marauders or by disease. And the financial situation, the economic situation there was simply awful. And the Gon was perplexed. He didn't know what to do. How could he send his great Talmudim to Eretz Yisrael without a minimum of security? Into, to where was he sending them? And the subsequent history of the Yishuv, of the Talmudim of the Vilna Gon in Eretz Yisrael actually substantiates this fear to a very great extent. The first 40 years of the existence of the communities established by the Talmidim that they in Eretz Yisrael were actually punctuated frequently with great tragedy. Epidemics. We're all familiar with the story of the great earthquake in Tzfat. Hundreds and hundreds of people died. And the Vilna Gaon was very much disturbed. Do I have the right to send my Talmidim off to this adventure? Who knows how it's going to turn out? Uh, okay, I'm not going to now continue the story how the Gaon resolved this doubt for himself. But here again we see the Gaon as portrayed as someone with profound feelings and great uh, emotions, stormy feelings in relation to the, at least to this area of Eretz Yisrael. And the question arises, to which I have no answer, was the Gaon really a stormy, emotional person in general? And for some reason, he's being portrayed as such only in this book. And then the question is, why? Or, did the Gaon have stormy emotions, particularly about this issue, as opposed to the other things in which he was involved. The first answer is the one which I tend to believe in, but of course uh, we have no way of uh, deciding this one way or the other. But it's a question which I think is uh, very interesting and tantalizing to speculate about. So today we've been able to catch a, well, I hope, a broader perspective 
It's a glimpse that the Vilna Gaon has gone, the Vilna Gaon as a personal, emotional person. Uh, our program for the future, I'd like to get into the Vilna Gaon's opposition to Hasidut, but in order to do that, we'll have to first examine something about the Vilna Gaon's worldview from an ethical point of view. So I hope that that, that will be our next uh, station. Call to Vlachim.